Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Agents from the U.S. Border Patrol are on the alert for drug smuggling and human trafficking near the border between New England and Canada. People will come here and either pick up the people that have walked into the U.S. or they'll drop off people that will walk into Canada. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll walk the border in the area this agency patrols, which is much bigger than you might think. We'll also get an update on the fishy story of the Codfather, and we'll head to Martha's Vineyard, a place that researchers thought would be perfect for this experiment to eradicate Lyme disease. These are some of the communities that have the highest rates of tick-borne disease in the country. And they are also unusually well-educated. Plus, one of the most recognizable people in Boston isn't Bird, Brady, or Big Poppy. It's this guy. I know what I've done. I've gotten a lot of people together, gotten an open dialogue, you know, between the races. Meet the hub's huggable Kitar bear. Next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. U.S. Border Patrol agents are dedicated to protecting the border 24 hours a day, monitoring for things like drug smuggling and human trafficking. But their jurisdiction also extends significantly inland, Within 100 miles of the border and the coastline, they've got broad authority to stop cars for immigration questions. And civil rights advocates say recent stops in New Hampshire and Vermont are concerning. Vermont Public Radio's Kathleen Masterson has this story. Hotel 5. That's U.S. Border Patrol agent Brad Brandt. He's alerting his colleagues back in the radio room that he's headed to a woodsy section of the border in an unmarked green SUV. He knows walking out along the border with two journalists will certainly trigger the sensors and cameras there. So yeah, this is it. This is the tree farm. Brant says the tree farm is the agent's nickname for this maple sugaring operation that butts up against the Canadian border. And it's just a stone's throw to Interstate 89. What we'll have is people will come here and either pick up the people that have walked into the U.S. or they'll drop off people that will walk into Canada through here because it's about a 10 or 15 minute walk to the border. This area is covered by a Border Patrol office in Swanton, Vermont. They patrol a stretch of the northern border from upstate New York through Vermont all the way to New Hampshire's border with Maine. That's 295 miles of dense woods, farmland, roads, and lakes. In their work along the 100-mile zone along the border, U.S. Border Patrol agents serve multiple roles. They work as immigration agents, they work with ICE, they set up checkpoints, and frequently they also serve as backup for local police. The Swanton sector apprehended around 300 people last year though only about 40% of those cases were ever brought to court. We get back in the car to head to another backcountry border road. Well, what we're looking for in general um, up here is just something that doesn't belong. The guys come out here and they work, and they get to know the area and the people that live in it and what they do and when they do it, and they're basically patrolling for something that doesn't fit the pattern that they know of. And that's worth a second look. But just what and who is worth a second look raises some red flags for civil rights advocates. And the concerns extend far beyond the physical border. In fact, U.S. Border Patrol can stop and question any car or person within 100 miles of the border. 
That includes areas within 100 miles from the coastline. So nearly two-thirds of the U.S. population falls under U.S. Border Patrol jurisdiction and includes basically all of New England. Unlike local law enforcement, Border Patrol agents can pull over a vehicle if they have reasonable suspicion its occupants are of illegal alienage. That basically means someone who's in the country illegally. I asked Brant how agents could determine illegal alienage without racial profiling. Well, we're not allowed to do racial profiling, so we use, you know, we develop articulable facts. I mean, we have, a, we have some experience based on, you know, I have 18 years doing this, so I can kind of tell, regardless of somebody's race, whether or not they're... I can look at you the way you're dressed, the way you act, the way you walk. You're probably from Vermont, you know? Um, if you were dressed a lot differently that didn't fit in, um, that would be an articulable fact. If you saw me and tried to hide, that's an articulable fact. None of those things by themselves would constitute reasonable suspicion of alienage. That's James Lyle, the executive director of the ACLU of Vermont. I asked him if these articulable facts would hold up in court, and he said that alone, they wouldn't. But when it comes down to it, even the courts aren't clear on whether race can be used as a factor for stopping a person. It's not a settled issue. It's one that's hotly contested. There's actually conflicting circuit law on whether agents can even consider race in making stops or whether that's racial profiling. Earlier this spring, two dairy farm workers were returning home to their farm after an activist event when their car was pulled over. The car had Vermont plates and was not pulled over for any traffic violations. It was pulled over because an agent suspected the occupants were not legal U.S. residents. The two workers were Mexican nationals who were residing in the U.S. undocumented. So they were arrested and handed over to ICE. However, U.S. Border Patrol wouldn't reveal what evidence led them to believe the car contained foreign nationals. Well, I can't really tell you the specifics on how the reasonable suspicion of illegal alienage was developed, but they were coming on a road that approaches the international border in East Franklin, in the area of East Franklin. That's Agent Brandt speaking about the arrests back in June. Leslie Holman, an immigration attorney in Vermont, says even the Customs and Border Patrol website has information that leaves a fuzzy line saying racial profiling is not allowed, but an agent could use nationality as an indicator in certain situations. CBP has on its website what it will be looking at, and it does say that, again, they want to not use racial profiling, but it then goes on to say that some of these things might be indicators. And she says the priorities of the presidential administration weigh heavily on just how these nuances are interpreted. And CBP it, you know, doesn't operate on its own but they are given a direction from the administration. U.S. Border Patrol won't say whether they've been given new directives by the Trump administration. But there have been sweeping policy changes for ICE, memos directing that agency to prioritize the deportation of any undocumented person in the U.S. And ACLU's James Lyle says the opaqueness with which the U.S. Border Patrol operates is also concerning. You know, the fact that the agency doesn't collect data on its own operations, which is, you know, a a standard law enforcement practice. Vermont police collect extensive data on on stops and searches. Um, Why is it that, you know, the largest law enforcement agency in the country, CBP, can't do the same? But even if U.S. Border Patrol agents aren't racially profiling most of the time, just the perception that they are can be damaging to communities that fall within their jurisdiction. Leslie Holman says in light of national policy and rhetoric, there's grave fear among immigrant communities, 
including people who are living legally in the U.S. And, and what is the ultimate effect of that? I mean, it can be horrible. People won't go to the police if they're victims of a crime. They may not seek medical care. They may not, you know, do things that they should be doing for their own safety or that benefit the community, which is an ultimate loss to us. Communities are already feeling the presence of U.S. Border Patrol. In recent months, several checkpoints set up in New Hampshire stopped hundreds of residents. In the most recent checkpoint in Lincoln, New Hampshire, several dozen immigrants were arrested, including students from a Massachusetts charter school. The U.S. Border Patrol has said it plans on using more checkpoints in northern New England in the future. That's VPR's Kathleen Masterson reporting. Earlier this year, we brought you the intriguing true crime story of Carlos Rafael, otherwise known as the Confather. Back in March, the New Bedford, Massachusetts-based fishing magnet pled guilty to 28 counts of fraud. The Confather had grossly underreported his catch at the expense of smaller fishermen who lacked the permits to bring in more valuable fish. Last week, Raphael received his sentence, 46 months in federal prison plus a $200,000 fine. Because of his outsized influence, Raphael's imprisonment has the potential to reshape New England's ground fishing business. To learn more, we've invited back Ben Goldfarb. He's a freelance journalist who's covered the case of the Codfather for Mother Jones Magazine and the Food and Environment Reporting Network. Ben, welcome back to Next. Thanks for having me. We're going to get into the sentencing uh, details in just a moment, but why don't you remind our listeners who exactly Carlos Rafael is and what his crimes were? Sure. So Carlos Rafael is the most powerful fisherman in New England and, and probably the United States. Um, he owns a company called Carlos Seafood Inc., uh, which at one time owned more than 40 boats that fished for scallops and ground fish, which are cod, haddock, flounder. Um, and he was basically arrested um, for fraudulently reporting his catch. He, he basically um, falsified his fishing reports to make it look like he was catching uh, less valuable, more abundant species like haddock, when in fact he was catching rarer, more valuable species like flounder. And as you explained to us in an earlier program, this wasn't just the case of a guy who had some fishing boats who was misreporting his catch. This was enabled by the fact that he'd built this pretty intricate vertical system uh, that spanned throughout the entire fishing industry. Maybe you can explain exactly how he was able to get away with this for such a long time. Sure. So, so um, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is the federal agency that regulates fisheries, basically requires vessel operators, so fishing captains, to turn in catch reports detailing how much they caught and where they caught it and so on. And simultaneously, they also require fish processing plants to uh, submit reports describing how much they offloaded from, from boats. Um, but as you say, because Carlos Rafael had this vertically integrated operation where he owned both processing facilities and fishing boats, he was able to falsify the two sets of documents to get them to line up, um, which is you know, a, a gigantic loophole uh, in the regulatory system, as, as you can imagine. How was he finally caught? He was caught through this very elaborate um, sting operation that that the IRS uh, put on, where basically the IRS sent undercover agents to Carlos Seafood Inc., um, posing as Russian mobsters who were interested in buying his fishing operation. Um, And 
when when Carlos told them that the the value of Carlos Seafood Inc. was $175 million, which is about eight times what he reported to the IRS. And, of course, the IRS agents were wearing uh, a wire, and the whole thing was recorded. And, um, yeah, it it didn't turn out well for Carlos Rafael. So there's the story of Carlos Rafael, obviously, as as you've said, a very colorful character, and the way he gets caught is uh, straight out of a movie. But then there's the reality of what this means for the fishing industry, not just in New Bedford, but all up and down the eastern seacoast. And I guess I'm wondering what happens next. What what happens to all of his fishing permits? How about the fishing boats he owns? How does that get divided up, and when do we hear about that piece of the sentencing? Right. So that's that's still a big, uh, outstanding question. The judge, uh, Judge William Young, declined to rule about the fate of, of Raphael's um, fishing vessels, and even more valuable than the vessels, the fishing permits that are attached to the vessels that basically allow him to go out and catch these fish. Uh, and, and the reason the judge declined to rule was because the, the, vet, the value of all of these assets um, is probably about $30 million, um, and, it's, and the judge is not sure whether it's constitutional uh, for the court to seize those kinds of assets. Um, the judge promised to uh, make a ruling about the decision as soon as possible, but what's probably going to happen is the fate of the, of the permits and vessels is going to be left to NOAA, to the federal agency, uh, to dispose of, of those assets as, as the agency sees fit. Um, and there, as you can imagine, there are lots of different people who believe that different things should be done with those, those vessels and permits. There are definitely groups like the North Atlantic Marine Alliance, which is based in Gloucester, Massachusetts, uh, that, that believes that these permits um, should be redistributed among the smaller fishermen who, who were harmed most by these crimes. But, you know, then again, um, people in New Bedford, where Carlos Rafael was based, um, also say, look, you know, these these boats and permits supported this this vast marine economy. You know that there are all these people who worked for Carlos and and you know who worked in uh, associated satellite industries, and that redistributing those assets up and down the coast is going to really harm uh, the you know the the people in New Bedford who were the kind of the most proximate victims of his of his crime. You, you've covered this beat for some time, and I'm wondering if you think that anything big changes coming out of this. I mean with all of the rules that were broken for such a long time, uh, that vertical integration we talked about, which on its face seems so set up for the very type of fraud that he committed. I guess I'm wondering, Ben, is something big going to change in the way the fishery is regulated to keep another Carlos Rafael from happening? Um, I think that I think that one uh, immediate change that we're likely to see is some kind of implementation of electronic monitoring, um, which is basically a systems of, of cameras and and satellite gear and, and basically ways of monitoring where fishermen are fishing and how much are, how much they're catching uh, remotely. Ben Goldfarb is a freelance journalist who's covered the case of the Codfather for the Food and Environment Reporting Network and Mother Jones Magazine. We'll have links to his reporting on our website, nextnewengland.org. Ben, thanks so much for joining us again. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
an update to another story we've been following, troubles at the VA Center in Manchester, New Hampshire. This past July, the Boston Globe Spotlight team published an investigative report. Staff described unsanitary conditions and patient neglect at the VA, a facility that was given a four-star rating by the Department of Veterans Affairs. The next day, two top officials were removed. Then two days later, a pipe burst, flooding five floors of the hospital. One of those spaces was dedicated to women's health. Now, as the Manchester VA rebuilds itself, some see an opportunity to improve the experience for women veterans. New Hampshire Public Radio's Peter Biello reports. Before July's flood, to get to the women's health clinic at the Manchester VA, women needed to walk through the front door, climb a flight of stairs to the elevator, and ride it up to the sixth floor. Veteran Cindy McGurk hated that elevator ride. Because I always get pushed back, and then they all start talking. Hi, how you doing? And I, I know they mean well, but I need to get the hell out of there. McGurk has PTSD. When she was in the Army during Desert Storm, she says she was repeatedly gang-raped by male soldiers. So being in a tight little space with men is stressful, to say the least. So I stop the elevator, and I take the stairs, because I can't handle it. On the sixth floor, the space reserved for women was really small, like a closet, McGurk says. I mean, essentially, it's this little room. It has two exam rooms in it, the nurse's office, and then the secretary. McGurk says this is not acceptable. She says women need a bigger space with a separate entrance so other women who have experienced military sexual trauma can avoid stressful encounters with men. Because we're just as important as all the other veterans, and we're not treated that way. The flood wiped out the Manchester VA's women's clinic on the sixth floor. For now, women receive their care on the first floor with men. Laura Case is the Women Veterans Program Manager at the Manchester VA. She says the women's clinic will be redesigned. So the clinic now will have a complete separate waiting room that is not impacted in the hallway. They will have a complete separate waiting room for them to come into. They can feel that their care is sensitive and private. But it'll still be on the sixth floor with no separate entrance from the outside. The workaround, Case says, is that women who feel uncomfortable can ask for a VA escort. That's not enough, says Democratic Congresswoman Annie Custer. She wants a separate entrance for women vets, like the one at the VA in White River Junction, Vermont. I think Manchester has fallen behind the times, frankly, and that this is an opportunity. And certainly I can tell you, you will have the strong support of the federal delegation um, to back you up with that. Custer says that includes additional funding if necessary. Fewer than half of all VA medical centers in the country have a freestanding women's clinic. Patty Hayes oversees women's health care at the VA. She says not all women want to be separate. Some women tell us they don't want to be in a women's clinic. They don't want to be seen as that different. Or they will tell me things like a soldier is a soldier is a soldier. I just want my health care from somebody that knows how to take care of me. She says women need to have a choice. Right now, the Manchester VA does not have plans for a freestanding women's clinic. Of course, physical space at the VA is just part of the health care picture for women vets. Legislation co-introduced earlier this year by Senator Maggie Hassan aims to enhance care for women vets by expanding peer-to-peer counseling for victims of sexual assault and enhancing maternity care. That bill is currently stalled. Right now, the Manchester VA is rebuilding the women's clinic. Officials say it's scheduled to reopen in early November. That's Peter Biello reporting. 
Coming up, Martha's Vineyard residents aren't necessarily big fans of genetic engineering, but what if a GMO mouse could rid their island of Lyme disease? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Not only was Lyme disease discovered here in New England, but it's had a pretty profound effect on our region. As we've reported, New England has the biggest concentration of Lyme cases and the problem seems to be getting worse. Public health officials have tried all sorts of efforts to cut down on the transmission of the disease, which is spread by pesky deer ticks. One of the places with the highest concentrations? Martha's Vineyard. That's where the Science Friday podcast Undiscovered went to track a geneticist who's proposing a novel solution, releasing genetically modified mice on the island. So what could go wrong? Undiscovered's co-host Annie Minoff joins us to talk about a science experiment that's less about mice and ticks and more about New England's democratic system. Annie, welcome to Next. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us about the scientist you met and, and his big idea. Sure. So the scientist is Kevin Esfelt, and he has a lab at MIT's Media Lab. And uh, he calls himself an evolutionary engineer, so kind of a different job description there. Um, but one of the first things he told me was he actually you know, lives in the Boston area, and so Lyme disease is a very personal question for him. I live in Newton, where we certainly have Lyme disease as well. My wife's a pediatrician, so my kids are not allowed to, in fact, run freely through the woods. And that's really the iconic image of American childhood, and we can't do that anymore. And that's a tragedy. So as you said, John, Kevin has developed a kind of unusual solution for this, this tragic problem. Uh, and the solution that he thinks will work for the island of Martha's Vineyard is essentially to genetically engineer the island's mouse population so that the mice are resistant to the Lyme bacterium, resistant to Lyme disease, and therefore can't infect ticks on the island. So he's proposing really changing the genetics of the island's mouse population to be Lyme resistant. What, it's a pretty what? radical idea. I was going to say that's a very radical idea. Maybe we'll get back to that in a moment, but maybe we can just flesh out a little bit how big the problem is with Lyme disease here on Martha's Vineyard that, that he's trying to solve. Sure. So if you go by the numbers, um, 2% of the Lyme cases reported from Massachusetts last year in 2016 were from Dukes County, which does include the island of Martha's Vineyard. But numbers are a little tricky because the CDC actually estimates that the reported cases uh, of Lyme, these are people who actually went to the doctor, the actual number of infections could be 10 times that many. And for me, um, going to the island and, and talking to people, everyone has had Lyme or knows someone intimately who has had Lyme. You know, my Uber driver had it twice. Um, and it was just amazing to hear how Lyme has impacted this island in ways, um, impacted Islanders' lives in ways big and small. Um, and here, here's what a few of them told me. 
When I know I'm going to be in a ticky environment, absolutely, permethrin-treated socks and pants and the DEET sprays and all are a huge part in prevention. Um, stay out of the tall grass, out of the woods as much as possible. Very, very careful where we walk and what we do. I think you have to check yourself every night, so you have to get naked a lot. <laughs> Uh, so obviously, it's a really big problem for them there. But as you say in the podcast, the people on the vineyard tend to like their lawns organic and their vegetables local. These are people who probably don't want a whole bunch of chemical fillers in their lives or any sort of big genetic experimentation. Why did he take this experiment to the vineyard of all places? Uh, well, one of the factors is very practical, which is that the vineyard is an island, which is actually an, a necessary thing for the project that Kevin's proposing. Um, but beyond that, uh, it comes to this, this concept of informed consent, which Kevin is very interested in. So the project that he's proposing would change the environment of the vineyard for everyone who lives there, vacations there. And how do you get permission from an island to do something that would change the island for everyone? Um, because he's made very clear, you know, whether and how this project happens is really up to the vineyard. So here's what he told me about that. These are some of the communities that have the highest rates of tick-borne disease in the country. And they are also unusually well-educated and have a strong tradition of local democracy through town hall meetings. So if you had to choose a place where getting informed consent would be easier than almost anywhere else, this is where you would want to start. You know, it's that tradition of town hall meetings that you always hear about New England, right? This is a community that has some practice in, in shared decision making. A absolutely. So well, let, let's get a little bit into the, the science that he's, that he's talking about. Uh, has genetic engineering like this, has it been tried elsewhere to try to prevent the spread of uh, animal-borne disease? So it's interesting. It has been tried um, outside of the United States. So there is a British company called Oxitec, and they have created a genetically modified male mosquito. And that mosquito carries a gene that is lethal to its offspring. So the idea is you can release some of these genetically modified mosquitoes into the environment, and all of the baby mosquitoes die, which you can imagine would be a very useful tool if you are a community uh, concerned about, say, dengue fever or Zika. Um, and so Oxitec has done trials with this genetically modified mosquito in Brazil, for example. Um, and one of the interesting things to me about this story is, as Kevin has been thinking through this mouse experiment, um, or this, this mouse project, Oxitec has actually been trying to do a trial in the U.S. in the Florida Keys of these genetically modified mosquitoes. And it's been kind of interesting to watch that controversy play out uh, in, in different ways. Well, the, the science that he's talking about, this is different than genetically engineered mosquitoes, which we've heard about in the past. And I, I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit more in detail how exactly this mouse experiment would work if indeed it, it works the way Kevin's looking for. Right. So kind of in the simplest terms, it's a two-part start or two -part process. So you genetically engineer a mouse that is resistant to Lyme disease and that can actually pass that Lyme resistance down to its offspring. So this is a genetic trait. Uh, and then you breed up a whole lot of these genetically modified mice and you release them en masse onto this island. And the idea uh, is not that these mice, you know, die out and leave the population, as is the case with uh, genetically modified mosquitoes, for example, but actually that you have a, a kind of permanent uh, 
community of genetically modified mice living on your island that are Lyme resistant. So that's that's kind of in broad outline the proposal. So I can only imagine what the meeting was like that you attended uh, last summer in the summer of 2016. <laughs> Kevin presents these ideas, and these are very big ideas, probably pretty hard for people to understand. I'm still getting trying to get my brain around them. Hey, me too. <laughs> yeah. Well, what was the reaction like? What were people saying in this meeting? Well, you know, they were very respectful listeners. <laughs> and so as Kevin's kind of laying this all out, I, I'm looking behind me, looking over my shoulder, trying to see this, how, you know, how people are reacting. But they were very poker-faced. Um, finally, at the end of the meeting, Kevin, I think, also was trying to get a sense of, you know, what is the temperature of the room here? What, are, what do they think of this proposal? And he, he asked people, you know, based on, on what you know right now, how many of you would be interested in me, you know, further pursuing this project, trying to actually genetically modify these mice. Uh, and, you know, this this for me was the moment, you know, how are people reacting? And uh, this was a room of about 100 people and, you know, 90 people raised their hands that they would want to explore this idea that they would like him to create these mice. Um, and that was pretty shocking to me, you know, to see that kind of consensus. That, that kind of consensus, but there was a there was a dissenter in the group, That's at least true. one. So, so tell us about uh, what she had to say. Right. So, um, someone did stand up shortly after this vote. Her name's Leslie Surchuk, and she is an infectious disease doctor and bioethicist. And this is what she said soon after everyone raised their hand. If there's ever a time when you ask questions like that and only get the positive, and you don't even get someone saying, "Do it on Nantucket." <laughs> Don't do it in my backyard. You question what information has been passed along or what information is known. You have to share with the audience what little you know right now. He, he had to know this was coming, Annie, right? There's right. almost always an infectious disease doctor and bioethicist in the room whenever you're trying <laughs> in any to. crowd on the vineyard. <laughs> yeah, exactly, As trying said, to do this. This is a very educated audience. <laughs> so, so what did he say to this? I mean, she makes a pretty good point. Right, and she's kind of making the point, like, don't if you see consensus, don't believe it because that means that th there are unexplored issues here, right? And so the way he responds to this is to really uh, be pretty frank about the risks of what is not known about this proposal, right? We're talking about engineering an ecosystem, and as Kevin uh, responded to Leslie, you know, I think his exact words were, "We're two-year-olds when it comes to understanding ecosystems." You know, there's a lot of opportunity here for for hubris and trying to make something better and making it worse. On the other hand, he also made the point that you know, not doing something is also a choice. So there are risks whether whether you go forward with this proposal. There are risks if you don't. So what needs to happen next for this project to actually get off the ground, where we actually have these mice on the vineyard? <laughs> So nothing, nothing is going to happen fast uh, with this. That that's what was clear to me. Um, so Kevin was actually coming to the vineyard before uh, he'd created these mice, before he'd created these genetically engineered mice, because it was important for him to, you know, come there at the outset and say, "Hey, are you interested in this?" Um, so so he's really at the very beginning in terms of actually uh, following through on this. So um, probably ten years. Uh, was kind of the very, very rough estimate for the earliest that we could see genetically modified mice on Martha's Vineyard. That's quite a long time. So so what happens next? What, what's the next step in all this? 
Uh, lots of meetings. <laughs> Are you surprised? <laughs> um, so Kevin, uh, since I spoke to him, this was last summer, has been back to the island seven times. Um, and next steps are to, on the science side, actually try to uh, isolate the Lyme-fighting antibodies that are going to be able to make these genetically modified mice resistant. That's on the science. Um, as far as people go, um, it's up to the vineyard to to kind of organize the infrastructure, the organizational infrastructure, to continue working on this with Kevin's team. So we're just at the very beginning of that. And the last question for you, and as a science reporter who's been covering this stuff for a long time, you've certainly run into an awful lot of stories in which scientists have tried things that people then find out about much later on. Sometimes they're happy with the results. Sometimes they're not too happy. But this whole idea of informed consent, of getting the people who live somewhere involved in the process, does this seem like something new to you? What what do you make of all this? Well, I think in the context of ecological engineering, yes, it is definitely new. But, you know, we've had the concept of informed consent in, you know, drug trials or medical trials for a long time. And I think it makes total sense to ask, you know, if 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 people are going to have change happening in their backyards to ask their opinion about that. Um, so I think that's the real experiment here, as exciting as the, the mouse engineering is, um, and it is very exciting, to see you know, how is this going to play out? Because we really just are at the very, very beginning. Annie Minoff is co-host of Undiscovered. It's a science podcast from Science Friday. Annie joined us from their studios in New York. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. There's another island we want to take you to in the middle of New Hampshire's Squam Lake. It's a place that draws boaters, kayakers, even swimmers for church. With a granite boulder serving as an altar and music from a hand-cranked organ, Chikora Island has hosted religious services of all kinds for more than 100 years. New Hampshire Public Radio's Sean Hurley visited the island with one of its most devoted caretakers. Along the water's edge in Bennett Cove on Squam Lake, Margie Howe-Emmons leads me to her boat. So this is my yacht. Hold on to your hat, you might need a seatbelt. <laughs> it isn't a yacht. I don't have a hat, and there isn't a seatbelt. We glide out beyond Willoughby Point, past a spray of stones called Otter Islands, until Chikoro Island, Church Island, as it's more commonly known, comes into view. It's dead ahead, but you can't see where, because there's an island behind it. But through the trees, I can see the white birch cross, the blue-gray slats of the pews. I mean, it's, it's not just for Squamley. Anybody can come. Fifty yards from the string of docks that line the southern end of the island, the boat stalls. Is that, is that it? <laughs> no. But that is. And as we drift in toward the docks at the speed of the lake itself, how Emmons continues. We have a different minister every Sunday and all different denominations. Throughout the summer, there are Catholic memorials, Jewish weddings, Pentecostal baptisms. My grandparents, how grandparents were the first ones married out here in 1916. As we tie up and come ashore, how Emmons points to the open cliffs of Rattlesnake Mountain across the lake. I mean, the number of kids who proposed to their spouses on the top of Rattlesnake and said, we're getting married on Church Island. My son, for one. Heidi and Matthew. Mm -hmm. She brings me along the pine needle path to the chapel. This island 
housed the first boys' camp ever in, in, in the United States. It was those campers who made the first pews, who set out the granite boulder of the altar and pulled a twist of stone from the lake and installed it as the chapel's reading lectern. It's been tended and cared for more than a century since then. The three-acre island is 600 feet long, 360 feet wide, and the open-air chapel sits at the northern end. Aside from the altar and the pews, there's a stone baptismal font hidden among the blueberry bushes, a wooden tower housing the same bell from the camp days, and a small lock shed with a hand-cranked organ inside. A one-woman, one-child operation, how Emmons says, with a kid cranking at the instruction of the female organist. So, she's here, and she <laughs> usually has a stick from the woods, and that means crank. So she knocks on the window? Uh -huh, uh -huh, with a stick. And then the cranker starts uh -huh, cranking? Exactly. I tap on the organ house window with a stick. How Emmons starts cranking, I start playing. I don't have another church. This pulls my heart and tugs at me all year round. I'm 71 years old, and I've been here since I was two months old. And, you know, it wasn't till my more adult life that I could really feel this place. What is the feel of this place then for you? Well, it's an ultimate peacefulness. Um, and it's just God's place. I don't feel like a church religious person. I'm certainly spiritual, and I'm a thinker. And I think in this day and age, whew, like right now in our world, lordy me, it's really nice to be in a place where you don't feel, see, hear any of it. You can see, feel, and hear whatever you like. And one of the things Margie Howe Emmons most likes to see, feel, and hear during Mass is a kind of gentle disruption of the proceedings. The ultimate service for me is to have a loon just go by and call, and minister usually stops and listens. And all stop and listen she says, as the church becomes a different kind of church and the chapel on the island expands outward across the water. That's Sean Hurley reporting. Coming up, we'll meet Boston's beloved busking bear. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. We've been bringing you stories of super energy-efficient housing as part of our series, The Big Switch. Most of these dwellings use a combination of traditional building materials, some high-tech advancements, and renewable energy sources like solar and geothermal to get to what's called net zero. That means no fossil fuels used. Reporter John Kalish found another such building in the small town of Warren, Vermont, but the key to this house is in its unconventional building material. Workmen are putting the final touches on an 1,800 square foot house made almost entirely of concrete. The man who designed it is known for his improvisational approach to architecture. This was not designed, here's the drawings and go build it. 
There's a big learning curve. That's Dave Sellers, who was named one of the top 100 architects in the world by Architectural Digest magazine. Sellers founded the Madsonian Museum of Industrial Design in Waitsfield, Vermont, which received the million-dollar contribution used to build this all-concrete structure. Sellers has dubbed it the Home Run House. This is such an amazing material. You take a liquid that comes up the road in a giant bucket, and you dump everything in the bucket into whatever your form is, the next day it's a rock, a thousand-year-old rock. Sellers is one of the founders of the Yestermorrow Design Build School in Waitsfield, Vermont. He taught a course called The Joy of Concrete that resulted in another all-concrete house that came to be known as the Archie Bunker. Concrete is great at sealing out cold air and radiating warmth from the sun in the winter. It's also incredibly strong. The Home Run House's exterior walls are five inches thick. A five-inch concrete wall is probably a hundred times stronger than a stud wall. You could take a fully loaded concrete truck in a giant helicopter, take it up about three or four hundred feet and drop it on the house. It won't go to the basement because this thing is so strong. Strong and yet quite flexible. Even though it's concrete, we can have some parts of the building change so that entire living room wall rolls away. That living room wall is 16 feet long and 9 feet high, made of glass with a wood frame. A combination of skateboard wheels and stainless steel rollers allow the 800-pound wall to slide open, exposing the outdoors. A similar wall on a custom-made hinge at the other end of the house swings open with the pull of a pinky. Architect Dave Sellers says the local craftsmen who worked on the Home Run House have had a blast building it, making a concrete balcony, counters, and bathtub. Carpenter Pierre Jobert worked on the house. When I first walked up here, I'm going like, wow, this is crazy. But then it all made sense in the end, and it's all fitting together bit by bit. Glass walls on wheels and a concrete bathtub are not the only aspects of the home run house that are raising eyebrows. It has a 120 square foot space for plants to grow in huge plastic containers filled with five feet of soil. A rainwater collection and drip irrigation system will nourish banana trees, tangerine trees, and possibly pineapple plants. Still, some in the green building world have questioned the idea of an all-concrete house. Cement uses a lot of energy in its manufacture, and so it has a fairly high carbon footprint. George Harvey is a Brattleboro-based writer for the Green Energy Times. He says when calculating the carbon footprint of the home run house, we need to consider how long it will last. Because the house is expected to be maintenance-free for 500 years, Harvey says its carbon footprint is the equivalent of 8 to 10 conventional homes. Clearly, this architect has done his homework. It's not a good idea to say never use cement. Because there are places where cement is just dandy, and this sounds like it might be one of them. Architect Dave Sellers says he already has someone who wants to buy this all-concrete house. Sellers says he'll take the proceeds from the sale and build another all-concrete home in Vermont. We learned a lot. I can't wait to do the next one. But there's a catch. Whoever buys the home run house will have to let the public in to see it. And that demand, says Dave Sellers, 
is set in stone. That was independent producer John Kalish reporting. You can find photos of the home run house on our website, nextnewengland.org. Now, Bostonians are not exactly known for the warm fuzzies, but in recent years, a fuzzy costume street performer has won the affection of many in New England's largest city. You are the heart and soul of this city. Every time I see you, you make my day, writes one reviewer on the We Love Kitar Bear Facebook page. A recent tweet reads, Kitar Bear is not the hero we deserve, but the hero we need. Freelance reporter Carol Vassar wanted to know more about the bear and the man inside the costume, so she brings us this report. I have an appointment this morning with a bear. I'm supposed to meet him at 10 at the South Station in Boston, but I can't find him. I check out everywhere inside, but there's no sight of him. So I go outside. I hear music. I follow it. Do I hear what I think I hear? I do believe I hear what I think I hear. Okay, he's a street musician, a busker in a bear suit. Lots of people walking by recognize him. They smile. They throw money in his basket. They shout encouragement and take selfies. That's because this mysterious man-bear is a Boston icon. He's the man, honestly. He's, uh, he's always around in a good spot, having a good time. He, he represents uh, in Boston in a home, really. He's an artist that prides himself on being hard to find. That's the voice of the bear. He often refers to himself in the third person. Today, while he's playing, he's wearing a Red Sox shirt. He resembles something from the Seth MacFarlane movie Ted, but his public persona is less foul-mouthed bear, more TV care bear. His job description is making people happy on a daily basis. And he does that, in part, by showing up unannounced wherever a crowd might be gathering. Fenway Park, Harvard Square, subway stations are a favorite. He plays modern R&B and pop tunes on an 80s retro instrument called a guitar. A guitar is an instrument that's a cross between the piano and the guitar. So I wanted to actually play both at the same time. And, and um, I saw Prince videos, and I was inspired from that. He doesn't have any formal music training. Instead, his mom's large CD collection provides all the music education he's ever needed. Michael Jackson, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Rolling Stones, Tupac, Pharrell, and especially Prince. He just loves music of all kinds and wants to share it with others. So who is this bear? My name is Shakespeare Marquise. They know me as Kitar Bear. Kitar Bear started performing in character about four years ago, just when Boston needed him most, after the 2013 marathon bombings. I played a party, like, uh, played drums with this Ted suit on. People liked it. And then I was invited to do a kids party, and adults were enjoying the, the act more than the kids, so I chose a mask. And the city embraced him as one of their own. But he's guarded, even elusive. But here's what I've learned. He's between the ages of 22 and 42, though off mic he claims to be 34. He's from Worcester. He doesn't like social media. His mother is his handler. She arranges his gigs, and she maintains his Facebook page. But why the bear suit? I'm blackening four flat tires on a dump truck. You see, before Shakespeare Marquise became Kitar Bear, he busked on the streets of Boston without a mask. 
it didn't go well. I went through a little bit of racism, you know, earlier then, and I decided, like, okay, let me just put on the bear mask and play both black and white music, and they won't know which one I am, you know. I know what I've done. I've gotten a lot of people together, you know, gotten an open dialogue, you know, between the races. But being famous does not protect Kitar Bear. He's been attacked on the street several times since 2014, including this past June. Boston was outraged. We don't treat our own that way, you know? Like, it's not patriotic, but <laughs> It's not patriotic. You just look at the guy, Boston all the way, you know? Like, come on. I don't even know what would motivate someone to attack someone who is all about bringing happiness and joy and sense of fun and, and camaraderie to the city all over. But Kitar Bear just shrugs it off. It was just um, kids being kids, and I can't really fault them because I was a kid too once. Some days, people make fun of him. They make perverted gestures. They call him a beast. Or they say he's not really playing. I'm like, yeah, whatever, you know, but I got a bucket full of money. You're broke. His profit, he says, is about $25 a month. That's after paying his phone bill, a few drinks, and purchasing a video game or two. There have also been community fundraisers. He needed to cover medical bills and buy new equipment after he was attacked. He has no traditional full-time job, but he's hoping one day to rack up enough regular gigs to make a living playing music. If the situation presents itself where I can find a, a restaurant or nightclub that I can play at weekly, maybe three or four of them, then, then yeah, it'll be full-time. I don't care who criticized me and, and people might say he's a fake or a fraud, but I know I have a job to do and, and a responsibility, and that's to keep everybody happy. You know? I don't care what anybody else thinks. You know, I'm just here to do what I got to do. That's independent producer Carol Vassar reporting. Carol produced that story as part of a Transom Story workshop intensive at the PRX Podcast Garage in Boston. You can watch a video featuring Kitar Bear at nextnewengland.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Jack Horowitz and Rob Rosenthal. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. If you enjoyed this week's show, follow our Facebook page at Next New England. We've got stories from around the region, videos, and a lot more. It's facebook.com slash nextnewengland. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Melville Charitable Trust and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR 90.9.